Hello. Hi, everyone. We're going to get started. If you're coming in now and you could come sit up at the front with us instead of the back, that would be amazing. I'm really cold. I need some body heat up here. It's 4.15. We've had a long day. We should all just get cozy. Okay. It's 4.17. Ready to go? Ready to go, team? Everybody ready? Hey, we're ready. Um, hi, I'm Adrienne Markworth. Um, I'm the executive director of Leah's Pantry, and we are really excited to bring you this session today. Um, I'm joined with Dr. Annie Lindsay. Wave. Monica Bogwan from my team. Um, Nancy from University of Nevada, Reno, was not able to come at the last minute, so we will be channeling all of the amazing information that she has into our respective portions. Um, the format of this session, well, I should, I'll acknowledge that in a second. The format of this session is going to be kind of a brief intro by Annie and Monica, um, and then I'm going to moderate kind of a little bit of a dialogue between the three of us as we try and figure out how this stuff translates into nutrition education and food insecurity and some things that I'm wondering about and wondering how they're going to answer the questions. So hopefully that'll be engaging for all of you in the late afternoon session, more of like a podcast fireside chat kind of a format than just presentations. Um, we want to thank the Pacific Southwest Rural Opioid Technical Assistance Regional Center for funding this project for the past couple of years. We're um, doing some training for Region 9, which is the Western states. Um, we did an in-person training in Sacramento in May, which we're now turning into an online training, and that will be available for free in FFY24, and so if you're not on the, I don't know how many of you have heard of Leah's Pantry, some of you may already be on our mailing list. If you're not, you can use this QR code to get on it, and then you'll see all the information that's going to come out about the training. I don't have like a release date at this time, but we're working really hard. <laughs> um, uh, so that'll be, if you're interested in this idea and these um, concepts and how it translates, this training will be even more in-depth than what we're able to do in just an hour today. So I want to just set the stage a little bit for why we wanted to bring this particular topic um, to this group. I think, first of all, we really believe that nutrition professionals should be aware of the prevalence of substance use disorder in the community. Um, and I think a little bit at the, about the biology and things that happen and, and the details and how it affects things like appetite and metabolism and risk for eating disorders and all these things is just should really be a job requirement for all of us. As I've been engaged in learning about this from Dr. Lindsay and the folks at um, KSAT, I've just really felt like, gosh, I didn't appreciate all of this to the level of detail that I probably should have, having been working in this field for as long as I've been working in it. Um, so I think given that, the question becomes like, should this be almost a universal precaution approach for nutrition educators, especially when we're working in rural settings? And we'll talk a little bit more about some of that data. Um, we, as many of you know, are big proponents of a trauma-informed approach to nutrition education, which we also believe should be a universal precaution approach. So Monica's here today to talk to you a little bit about the alignment between a trauma-informed approach and how we can be responsive to folks and communities really battling substance use disorder. 
Um, so I think learning a little bit more about the data, a little bit more about the biology, a little bit more about trends, and thinking deeply about the, I guess, like, codependence of things like poverty and food insecurity and substance abuse is just a helpful way that we as nutrition educators can spend our time as we move, you know, even more deeply into PSC work, as we move more deeply, you know, into root causes, as we're always seeking to reframe behaviors that we see through a more compassionate lens. So hopefully today will be a good jump start if this is um, either your first time jumping into this or or maybe even not, right? Um, get some new ideas. Um, Okay, so when we're talking about the, the work that's been done for this particular funded project, we're just looking at the rural counties, but I think what I've learned from the folks at UCLA and Nancy in general is that these data is not that much different. <laughs> right, elsewhere. I think there are differences between rural and urban, urban settings, maybe especially with regard to percentage of people in treatment. But uh, for sure, I think this is applicable to those of you that are working in urban settings and other parts of the country. It's not just focused on uh, Western region rural settings. Um, I think we have all been hearing a lot of the news around fentanyl, and this is just something that is not right now getting better. Um, it's getting worse, so huge challenges. Uh, SNAP-Ed, and, and I think the rest of us that aren't even SNAP-Ed funded, believe, I think nutrition education's always been collaborative. We're always looking to seek working across settings and sectors. So we can take the lead in some of these conversations even if we don't feel like it's our expertise. Um, now, in terms of the top 10 priorities, uh, Annie pulled this earlier. I mean, number one, access to care for rural counties. So again, getting into treatment. Nutrition and weight status is actually the, the number two public health crisis. Diabetes, mental health, and substance use disorder. So this is really co-occurring with everything else um, that we're already struggling with. So very, very relevant. Um, we also know a little bit about stigma, right? We've talked a lot about stigma over the past 10 years in Charitable Food Network and with SNAP. Stigma is a big reason why people don't go in for treatment, especially in rural areas. So again, that trauma-informed, compassionate approach is really important for us to consider as we're working with folks struggling with um, substance abuse. And, and or Annie will talk a little bit more about this. And then there's just huge overlap right, in folks that are struggling with substance use disorder and are eligible for SNAP or SNAP-Ed or the variety of other federal nutrition assistance programs. So we know we have community partners that are really aligned um, with these efforts. So just an encouragement as you're sitting here right now thinking about, like, who can I learn more about this in my community from? What partners might I already be working at that know about this? Um, how can I become more involved in these efforts in my area when we're working in the community? And for those of you doing research, there's a lot of areas that have just not been touched with research on um, the intersection between food insecurity and substance abuse. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of options out there for how to get involved. Um, okay, so I'd like to right now introduce Dr. Annie Lindsay, who's going to dive into this topic for us. All right. So yeah, I, I like the the statements that she made about using the the uh, 
you know, the approach that we're, we're all going to take, that it's a, it's a universal precaution. Because even when you see, and when you see terminology like SUD, substance use disorder, the DSM-5 doesn't have to define it as substance use disorder. It doesn't have to meet the criteria. We're just talking about substance use in America, and substance use in America, regardless of, of what you call it. And I think the other thing that I want to say is if we don't partner nutrition and physical activity folks with them. What's happening is that our prisons, our treatment centers, and all of our, our clinical psychologists and social workers are doing our work for us because they're providing what they see online as diets, keto diets, doing weight loss challenge, and all the things that folks with substance use go through and helping them sort of self-medicate in ways that would just make most of you cringe. So uh, we have to get involved, and I'm happy to see that we that we that we are. I've been doing this work since the mid '90s, so uh, I'm super happy to see that it's becoming really necessary. If you look at uh, 2021, I'm sure everybody's heard that 100,000 Americans were killed from the over uh, overdose epidemic that killed over 100,000 Americans, um, and that's the opioid. But I'm going to tell you, the opioid was the killer. If you look at the second thing it says right there, um, is that methamphetamine is the second epidemic and points to alarming trends co-occurring. It's the methamphetamine that is the problem, that is the addiction, especially for women, young women, 34, with low income and SNAP eligible. This is our methamphetamine population. You see them every day when you do nutrition education, every single day. Um, but the, it's the opioid that's killing them. I'm gonna show you really quick how this happens. So if you look at this, these are the, um, it, if you look at how uh, substances, because you've probably heard that we're doing better. You know, we have less uh, substance use in America from 2010 to 2020. You can see overall it went down. But the two that didn't go down is the light purple one, which is methamphetamine, and the orange one, which is uh, heroin or, or um, opioid synthetic. And what happens is that those have actually increased when everything else, alcohol, marijuana, everything else has gone down gradually. So don't believe when you hear that we, we don't have as many issues, because we do. It's just very specific to methamphetamine and opioids. And what are those drivers? This, this slide actually, if you look it up on the internet, it'll say uh, drivers of drug overdose deaths. But they're not overdose deaths. Be, understand that the methamphetamine is the drug and the way it's used is synergistically with an opioid. So women want energy, they want, they want the pick-me-up with the methamphetamine and then the opioid helps them kind of come back down and then it starts over again. Unfortunately, the opioid epidemic that we have in America is because of where they're getting these opioids from are coming in and they're actually a fentanyl that's like 100 times that of heroin and it's, it's not an overdose, they're not addicted to it, it's a poisoning because they don't know what's in the fentanyl and then they're dropping dead. And teenagers, teenage girls, they think they're getting something else and then the fentanyl is laced on the drug. A child could be getting a simple anxiety or depression or a weight loss drug or Adderall or uh, Ritalin, which is really big in the suburbs, suburbs uh, for getting uh, weight loss. But then when they get it, it's laced with fentanyl, one pill, 
and they're dead on the floor. So it really is a poisoning and not necessarily an, an overdose. But you can see, again, that the methamphetamine is associated with that overdose, and the methamphetamine is increasing um, super, super high. Um, okay. Now I'm going to tell you why, and this is what's going to make you go, oh, I see where I can be part of this. These are the, the acute effects of methamphetamine and stimulants that are being taken by uh, people all across America, and especially um, uh, women. These are the effects, and if you look at them, um, the early stages of use are mostly pleasurable and have positive effects. Things like help them work longer hours, help them lose weight, help study longer, become more athletic. I mean, what woman in America doesn't want that, right? That's like the drug that we all want. Unfortunately, this is just a, a way that some people think that this is going to be the easy route for them. So unfortunately, it has all these other impacts. So if you look, this is a seminal study that came out of UCLA Integrated Substance Use Center back in 2004 that laid the foundation for this work that I'd already been seeing five years before that. And it shows the motivators for methamphetamine for men and women. The blue is the men and the orange is the women. The top two motivators are weight loss and energy. This is why we have a methamphetamine and stimulant problem for women in America because of weight loss and energy. And so when they stop using the drug, they immediately begin to gain weight and then it becomes a self-medicate. Well, now I don't have the drug, so now what am I gonna do? And they're getting advice from anybody that'll give it to them, and most of those are gateways back. If they're doing keto diet, they don't understand the importance of carbohydrates, then they're immediately going back to, uh, eventually it becomes a gateway drug, especially energy drinks. Oh, don't get me started on that one. Energy drinks has been found to be a gateway back to methamphetamine, so these legal things aren't really that effective. So, um, why nutrition and physical activity? Why should we be focus, focusing really on this? These are the things that we're finding in uh, people when they come in from substance use, malnutrition, low energy and fatigue, impaired metabolism, impaired satiety cues. They don't even know. They have no idea when they're hungry or when they're full. Um, weight issues and then, of course, sleep disorders. And these are all things that we talk about every single day. Maybe you don't talk about a sleep, but we definitely do in relation to um, obesity and obesity prevention. Um, especially women, this is, a, this is a, a super big issue, and we know that we can make a difference and improve recovery outcomes as well as like Adrian said, the partnership both, as well as improve you know, food security um, in this country by actually coming together to talk about these. This is a study, I just wanna mention that this is a really important study um, that showed the prevalence of poor diets. This was a study of 67 patients admitted to a public health detox center right after detoxing from whatever drug that they were on. They did, um, a diet quality score, a blood test, and subjective global assessment for malnutrition. 88% required some type of nutritional guidance. 50% were clinically deficient, and those were mostly it, vitamin A, iron, potassium, vitamin C. And then 24% actually had uh, defined as mild to moderate malnutrition. So people are coming in, I mean, it makes sense, right? When you're detoxing and you, you have bad diets anyway when you're on the streets. And again, I've 
I've worked with and assessed uh, about 5,000 women in the last 10 years. The average age is 34, 60% um, white, and mostly about two to three children per mother. So this is the population, and that is our population in nutrition education oftentimes too. And reproductive age is the highest age right now for the opioid as well. Um, this is also a study I thought was really interesting um, that they found similar to chronic disease, the significant impact of diet quality extends to high prevalence mental illness. So when they compared it to the Western diet, the dietary patterns that we know to be traditional dietary patterns were associated with lower depression and anxiety. So huge mental health impact. And I'm not going to get all into this because we could do a whole session on this. Um, and if we did, I'd yank one of our dietitians up to do this with me. But if you look at the impact of nutrition on mental health, just, just as a couple examples like carbohydrates. Carbohydrates is the one thing that when people start to gain weight from stop using the drug, they immediately go to the no-carb diet, right? The worst thing they can do because carbohydrates not only are the main source of energy, but the brain cannot function. The neurotransmitters um, become disrupted and they have problems. Uh, neurotransmission uh, like uh, dopamine plays a huge, huge role in the, in the stimulant drug use. So the carbohydrates um, being withheld causes a, a, a greater problem. The same thing with fat. Um, has tremendous impact on mood um, negatively. And then proteins are the main neurotransmitters, are the main uh, uh, brain chemical. So if we're not getting protein, we're not meeting, we're not getting those neurotransmitters are not functioning and we're actually losing them because that's what they are. They're amino-based and they're protein. So what happens when we take those out becomes a big problem. Another thing that they can add in vitamins and minerals, um, we know that important during uh, recovery, super, super important during that time. Uh, vitamins and minerals, uh, and I already mentioned some of the ones that were real popular. I also want to mention fiber. I mean, look at when people use opioids, right? When the doctor prescribes an opioid after, after a surgery or something, always says, oh, and also take these laxatives, right? So that's a quick fix for people with substance use because the opioid worked for whatever they were taking it for, and now it's completely paralyzed their bowels and their system. So now they need fiber in order to recover or they never recover. So it's just this vicious cycle and it stops at the nutrition. Like they're going into treatment, they're trying to get them to stop using, get them sober, get them back to work, get them, but they've left out the most important thing and 40 to 60% of people will relapse within the first 30 days. And do you know why? because they're not sleeping, they're, they're, they don't know where their next meal's coming from, they have terrible, terrible nutrition, they're fatigued and they're tired and they can't come into treatment and go, help me here, I'm, I'm ready to go. They're just kind of come in and they're, they're just, they're lost and they're tired and they're fatigued. So we can make a huge impact during that time. Um, so, and, and uh, dehydration is another big one. So, um, to sort of wrap this up in terms of what can we do, we can offer nutrition classes, which we know have their studies, really great studies that show that nutrition, the impact of nutrition um, 
classes, not even just medical nutrition therapy. We're not just talking about M&T. I mean, that's great, and I hope someday I'll plug here that they get board certification in A&D for this, but M&T is a great thing, but we need classes, just people, basic nutrition classes and, and understanding of this population. You can see here the impact of physical activity on physical activity. The left side is anxiety. Um, the middle one is depression. And then I just wanted to show you the one on the right, which is my favorite one, which shows you the first 5,000. I know you've heard that you should be getting all of your clients to do 10,000 steps, and that's just, the CDC doesn't even, there's no research on that. I would, you would laugh if you want to know, come up after, and I'll tell you where that came from. It came from Japan in the 1960s. There is no, no data that says 10,000 steps is what we need. And the first 5,000 steps is where we're going to have the greatest impact on substance use, improving mental health. Zero to 5,000. That's, that's incredible. So just getting people up and moving is a big part of what we can do. And then uh, tailored response, some of these, I don't even need to read all these because these are all things that we do. These are all things that um, people in nutrition and physical activity already know, already doing, but these really, really help um, during this time. Um, so I'm not gonna go through those. I wanna uh, finish up on, on my last slide, which is that we also have to understand in promoting physical activity excuse me, when promoting physical activity and nutrition for substance use population, that then there's unique challenges that women face. And women, are, there's a primary audience, like I already said. So um, because they use, women use for different drugs for different reasons. Drugs manifest themselves in their bodies different than men. They relapse for different reasons and they use different drugs than men. So we have to look at that and why methamphetamine is the only drug that more women are using at, at a closer rate than men. And if weight is an issue, the minute that weight stops, now we, now we or I'm sorry, the drug stops, now we, we start to get into the area of how do we um, address the potential for eating disorders, of um, body image issues. We have to address sort of all of those as well as basic nutrition. And there's some things that we have to be careful of, like, like s simple things about reading a food label. You know, there's just, just things that we have to look at to say, are we actually helping these individuals or are we actually fueling a trigger that ultimately is a relapse? And 71% in my study of 5,000 women, 71% said they were concerned about going to treatment because of weight gain. And 30, a third of that population said, I will likely use when I leave just long enough to get my weight down. They call it the meth diet. And you can't do a meth diet for long enough to get your weight down. It doesn't happen that way. So there's a lot of these, and again, I'm not gonna get into these. There's gonna be a lot of resources that we'll be providing. Um, you can reach out to me as well. I have um, lots of resources for you. Um, but we have to look at, in terms of um, approach for women in recovery, that the dieting practice have to be addressed, the nutrition has to be addressed, um, exercise, weight gain, body image, um, all of these are topics, impaired metabolism and how we get that back up, and it looks very, very different for, for women. I'm not saying that men don't have this problem, so don't get me wrong. It's just that all of our data, all of our studies, all of our curriculum and resources 
are developed for men and then given to these women and then we wonder why they fail at that, right? I mean, even AA had a chapter on the wives years ago and they changed the wives to the spouses but they didn't change anything else in the curriculum. So this is what we need to be addressing with these women. So I could talk all day about it but Adrian told me I can't, so. <laughs> Okay, um, so I'm going to do my best to stick to my time, time frame. Um, so I'm here to bring this trauma-informed lens that we hope um, to, uh, we, we believe that um, addressing this population is going to require. And besides the, the idea that nutrition can help with the physical recovery, um, that um, you know, people with addiction are often um, traumatized folks, um, and people with addiction are at risk for disordered eating. We have to also remember that food is a really important part of um, successful recovery, because folks in recovery are not just trying to stop the behavior, but are trying to reclaim all, very many aspects of their lives and build them in a way that can be healthy and sustainable. Um, and we all know that there are multiple ways that food can do that if we approach it with a certain lens. So, I don't know how many of you have seen, oh, did it not go, okay. Um, have seen this, it's uh, the SAMHSA um, trauma-informed approach wheel. Um, it's just sort of an over, over uh, uh, general framing of what it takes to kind of go through a trauma-informed process. So. I'll, talk about that very briefly, what, what we like to identify as the trauma-informed uh, nutrition uh, education process or nutrition process. Um, so, you know, we've done some realizing of um, the problem. We've recognizing, re recognized some signs of the problem. Um, and so how are we going to frame the response and um, how are we going to address um, the resisting re-traumatization and not just and building resilience that aspect of recovery and and bringing uh resilience and flourishing into folks lives um so i don't know how many have you heard of the aces study okay many of you um this is if you've heard of trauma from care um in the last few years it's heavily based on the um, publication of this study, which was 20-something years ago, um, which helped us to start to see um, the connections between past trauma, childhood trauma, even intergenerational trauma, um, on health outcomes. So it can lead to um, our disrupted biology, disruptive disruption in um, biological functioning, um, health, social and cognitive impairment and behavior change, and ultimately to diseases like, of course, the ones we're addressing um, through nutrition work, but also addiction. So we have to think about trauma not just as a physical problem, but one that's a biopsychosocial, um, that has a biopsychosocial impact. And so um, it asks us, this lens asks us to kind of expand how we look at um, health in general. So trauma impact, complicates our quest for health um, in 
a number of ways. So it impacts digestion, appetite, and metabolic health. It impacts the ability to regulate one's nervous system to um, achieve a state of what um, the scientists and researchers call the rest and digest, the one we need in order to be able to gather our nutrients and to eat and, and, and heal our bodies um, with our nutrients. It impacts decision-making, so a lot of times, well, if you think about nutrition, nutrition um, and, and practicing good nutrition is, um, requires the ability to think about long-term uh, impact of one's health. It's not a right-in-the-moment, short-term thinking. We have to, to be in that space, one has to be thinking about the future. And for many people in trauma, many people in addiction, um, and people who are living under um, you know, adverse social circumstances, day-to-day -day thinking is the predominant um, need to survive and, and to think about the day um, and not have opportunities to think about what comes next or what comes in a year or six months. Trauma also affects physical functioning and pain. Um, and so pain and being able to walk and just move and move through the world can then lead to an ability to practice good nutrition. Trauma also um, complicates our quest for health because we are often stuck in this need to achieve safety and control. Um, so folks who have been traumatized are, are, are looking to have that need met and constantly looking for that need to be met because it, it might not have been met in, in, for, that allows them to recover. Um, and so, f and of course, you know, it, adverse, um, adverse circumstances, social circumstances um, are traumatic and can impact access to information and resources. Um, let's go talk about a little bit about safety and control, though. Um, when we think about uh, drug use, drug use is often a quest for safety and control. Um, it's, it's a solution to a problem that is what Dr. Felitti, the um, original researcher on the ACEs um, research said. It's, you know, often, in his case, he was looking at eating or um, unhealthy eating and identified it as a, a solution to a problem, even though um, it created another problem. And the same way we could think about substance use. Um, and so when folks who are in recovery from substance use um, may find that food can be the next thing they can seek safety and control in. So if we're not thinking about that aspect of, of what people need in their lives, we might miss something when we start talking about food. Um, and so we need to also apply this sense of addiction and um, Food use in, in a food, uh, the way that f people might use food in ways to soothe is similar to the ways that they might use drugs. Um, not just as a decision or intellectual choice, um, but one that is a physiological and kind of a spiritual need being met. So these quotes are, um, examples of what people who have been in recovery said it was like to be using um, substances. It said it was being, like being hugged by Jesus or, um, you know, your body's telling you 
t just get out of it, get out of it. It's, so there's just urgency, um, and we should think about it as more than just a decision, um, but really a much more deeper need being met. It's a spiritual one, it's a physiological one, it's a core um, embodied sense. Um, and we can see that also in the ways many people talk about food um, and their use of food. Um, and so this person was talking about um, eating, their essay was on, are you eating to feel safe? And they said, I wanted my body to feel anchored, secure in a very primal way. The second sandwich gave me roots. The additional fullness gave me connection to the earth. So we have to really recognize that people are needing at more than anything, connection, a sense of home, a sense of groundedness, rootedness. Um, and oftentimes this is as the result of shattered relationships in their lives, shattered relationships in their community, shadow relationships in the social contract. Um, and the substance, either food or, or, um, or uh, narcotic substance, is to replacing that need. So we really have to think about the embodiment um, of, of uh, food and addiction. And people don't respond to information alone, and especially um, people who successfully uh, recover. Um, they're not just seeking, like I said, not just seeking to stop the use, but they're seeking flourishing. And when they successfully find places to flourish outside of, um, outside of you know, the substances they use, um, they can thrive. Um, so these are the assets and buffers, um, or I just recently heard them called recovery capital that support these things. Um, what's missing from this here, and, and um, I'm not gonna talk too much about, but another piece of recovery capital is housing and health access and employment. Um, but here, strong families and communities, rich cultural traditions and self-healing practices in a trauma-informed um, and resilience-building um, framework is, um, is an important tool. And food and nutrition, if, as you all, probably know, um, can be really important vehicles for all of these things. It can be embedded in so many ways in just these, these three areas, in addition to um, uh, you know, the basic needs of, of life. Um, we also uh, know that substance use touches around half of US families. So um, when we're doing our work in nutrition education, we're often working with people who may not have addiction, but they have family members who are, um, who are suffering from addiction. Um, and so the family, and we can Im impact um, the family by thinking about uh, the connection they may have to someone in their life who um, uh, suffers from substance uh, use. And so, it's, it's impacting almost all of our, our, our audience, our, our nutrition education audience. And so we really have to be far more proactive um, about uh, and intentionally bringing in an understanding of this, um, this area into uh, our, our work. Um, we can be helping to prevent overdose and supporting affected families and promoting recovery by incorporating these um, assets and buffers into our work. And of course, there's a multiplicity of ways you can do that. Um, I won't talk too much about that today. Um, but this is 
uh, a quote from SAMHSA, a person's recovery is built on his or her strengths, talents, coping abilities, resources, and inherent values. It's holistic and addresses the whole person and their community, and is supported by peers, friends, and family members. Um, if we want to take that word recovery out and think about their whole health and well-being, um, this statement applies even more so. So, thank you. All right, a lot to think about, huh? Kind of a lot of different ways to understand this. So I want to take a few minutes here um, at the end, and we'll leave some time for questions, but thought it might be interesting to hear. They both brought really different perspectives, I think, to this issue, um, different ways that we can think about it, and so interested to see how we get into the nuance here a little bit. Um, a lot of us are working not only on community nutrition, but also on food security efforts in some ways, right? So my question for you guys, and is this mic on? Yeah, it is now. It is? Oh, good. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, to the extent that populations who struggle with substance use disorder coincide with communities rife with food insecurity, are there good reasons to think that community food security efforts can reduce the risk of substance use disorder? So I kind of, we talked a lot about, like, once people are already in a substance use disorder situation, but you know, what role, you know, what do you think, Annie, with regards to how our work is also preventative? Yeah, so if you look at, if you look at the people with substance use, a lot of them are not only food insecure, but the foods that they are getting are not helping them they're furthering the problem of the fact that they're missing all the micronutrients and basic macronutrients, to be perfectly honest, in their system. So I think one of the things we have to do is ensure that the foods that we're putting out there, which I know people are working hard at, but particularly for this audience, that we're working to ensure that those are somewhat quality foods that, that are being delivered, because like I said, most of this population is getting uh, food from wherever they can, especially early on in, in recovery until they're back working again and they're feeding their families in the same way. Because they don't really talk about in the SNAP-Ed program or other programs as nutrition being preventative of substance use disorder, right? We talk a lot further out about chronic disease. But when you look at the rates of substance use disorder and the, and the urgency of it and how quickly it is, it seems like it's not a bad thing to explore, right? Like what kind of messages would help to tie nutrition for parents also around that buffering from um, substance use? Monica, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, we just can draw, draw the thread from um, substance use and trauma to that disconnection um, from... Um, our community and our social contract and the, the need to, for all of us to feel supported and have what we need. Um, so, you know, I, I like to think of what we do in community education as, as restoring some of that to our communities. So when you're talking about recovery settings, Annie, can you explain to us a little bit about what you would see as phases of recovery for people? So those of us that don't know much about this, I imagine there's like distinct areas where maybe different types of interventions are, are the best, right? Like in very early recovery, I can't imagine nutrition education yeah. is as effective as later. So this is, a, this is something we have to negotiate with community settings that are doing substance use recovery. 
um, because there's a tendency to look at, and I've seen this for 30 years, to look at nutrition as the reward. Like, first you detox and you get sober and then you work on this part and then you work on this part and then you get employed and then you make sure we're working on CPS, get your kids back. We do all these things, your mental health, deal with your anger. And then if you survive recovery that long, you could take a nice nutrition and, and health class at the end to make your life better. And if you look up the definition in the dictionary of any, or just Google PAWS, P-A-W-S, which is post-acute withdrawal syndrome, and look at the, what a person goes through immediately after detox, it's all the things that we're trying to fix through healthy diets, like fatigue, you know, um, malnutrition, low energy. There, it's this whole list of things that we should be in there in the very, very first days. And that's why I said they, they, they don't recover. They're, we're losing over half the population in the first 30 days. And then if they survive that, then they go on to what they call mental relapse and then eventual physical. But the first one is just simply emotional. It's the Maslow's what hierarchy of needs. Your basic needs aren't being met, and so recovery is, is, is useless. No matter how perfect the program is, if they're not able to even take it in, they just put it in a toolbox and take it with them and hope they can use it someday. So we have to kind of negotiate to, to, to allow that to be part of that early phase, and I think that would change the whole face of how recovery recovery happens. It sounds like what you're describing is almost more of a PSE than it is a direct education, working with recovery centers to think about when they embed nutrition education or just nutrition support. You know, when I hear about SNAP-Ed working in recovery, I would say it's more about direct education than it is about a PSC, right? It's more, seems to me, okay, we're going to work with recovery centers to provide education to clients, but I don't think I've heard as much on that and so maybe there's an opportunity there for that multi-level intervention and conversation and recovery as well, and maybe should be a part of any agreement to do direct ed with recovery is to do that training and technical assistance that we're allowed to do in SNAP-Ed to really share with recovery staff yeah, that kind of data. Yeah, or even show how to use their EBT because a lot of them have that. But when they were using drugs, they would just eat at the 7-Eleven, and then they wouldn't eat for three days, and then they'd go to 7-Eleven, and then they wouldn't eat for three days. So, the, you know, just teaching them basically how to, mm -hmm. to, to buy healthy for their family. Um, I want to leave a few minutes for questions. Um, what would you say, you know, you mentioned briefly, Annie, when you were talking about being careful about some of the topics, for example, label reading or, you know, give us a really specific example of a very common message that we often deliver in our, in our nutrition education classes, you know, SNAP-Ed or FNAP or whatever, that you might recommend reframing. And then, Monica, I'd love to hear your same take on that message from a trauma-informed lens, and sometimes they kind of intersect. Well, I definitely think, and I mentioned this, labels and calories. Calories is, is, is a loud term. Even the term healthy, usually if somebody says you're healthy after they've stopped using and you say, well, but you look so healthy now, they hear fat. And the, so words like that can traumatize them to be right back in. It's like, what do you mean healthy? I know what you're really saying. That's just a nice way of saying it. And removing like calories, focusing on the, 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 um, 
the uh, dietary recommended guidelines and we use that little five and 20 guide that's really nice that helps them look for foods that increase nutrients rather than look for foods that are calorie based or um, exercise. We don't even use the word exercise because that also becomes another um, compensatory behavior just like uh, you know some of the other things and so we just stick with you know physical activity joyful movement things like that to get them you know to start that initial you know zero to five thousand um, carbohydrates is another big one um, we have to in normal nutrition classes we don't spend that much time explaining how a carbohydrate works in the body and what it means but we have to with this population we really go down the road. Um, uh, Aurora and I filmed a video on, on a simple little carbohydrate video that we've actually shared with, with them that helps them understand the important role of carbohydrates as being a life-sustaining. Um, so it's little common terminology that we just have to shift either to a different word or, or come from a different angle to explain it. But it sounds like you're saying there's like really also an instructional strategy difference because they have different need for information perhaps than the you know, general public. I know that we've moved away in a lot of nutrition education of doing a lot of conversation about macronutrients or micronutrients and it's kind of like blah, blah, blah science, right? Let's talk about cooking. Let's talk about taste. Let's talk about, you know, the diversity of all the delicious foods. But it sounds like for people in recovery, they might really benefit from understanding the science in a different way. Like it might really help them to understand their own brain and their own body, right? So that's in, that was interesting to, to me, right? Yeah, as you were Everything. talking, I was like, I feel like that's different. Like that's a, that's a direction we're not moving in right now as a field. But maybe for this population, we can revisit it for a different reason, right? Like not just knowledge for knowledge's sake, but just knowledge because it's gonna be helpful. Monica, from a trauma-informed perspective, how are some of the reframing skills and trauma-informed messaging skills that maybe some of you have already worked on, how can we leverage those skills to meet you know, the population Annie's describing? Yeah, and I think what um, Annie touched on is this need to help people identify what can bring them that sense of joy and, and um, bring those feelings into their lives through um, food, either through the types of foods they're eating or, um, you know, I think the, the cooking together, the cooking skill development, that building of self-efficacy can also, for people who end up finding that's a joyful experience, that can also help rebuild, you know, the joy and, and bring, I, I think that element might be more needed before kind of moving into those skills of, you know, identifying, you know, my plate and those kinds of things. Um, the other thing um, I, would, I would think about is talking about weight um, and to Annie's point about how concerned women are about weight when they're, they've been using. Um, and I think in general, our, our communities that we uh, serve, folks are thinking weight, even though they might not be saying it, right? They're in the class because they're thinking about their weight. Um, and many of us are moving into this sense of, you know, weight neutral messaging and these kinds of things. But I think we have to think about ways to specifically talk about weight so they can have it reframed. Because if we're not saying anything about it, we're just saying we're not going to talk about weight, um, 
they're going to go to the internet, and that's where they're learning about these things. So we have to give um, realistic expect set realistic expectations about weight loss, break some of those um, messages, and I also, you know, I think many of us we're getting our online information from good sources, but we may not be trolling those other sites where people are getting their information from, and I think it's worth really looking into those sites, those websites and those TikToks to see what people are hearing. Because every time I go, there's a whole new thing. <laughs> and I'm like, that's what you're hearing? Okay, I, that's a good information. But yeah, so our weight conversations, we have to think about them more, um, about how we deliver, deliver um, you know, the idea of how, how to achieve weight loss. Well, and I think what goes along with that is we also have to be comfortable talking about it. Mm -hmm. And we have to be comfortable with our own weight and our own body size. And I know across dietitians, nutrition educators, medical professionals, that's the number one reason probably people really don't want to talk about it is because we're also in this country very uncomfortable with weight as a, as a concept, right? So I think we'll probably move into opening it up for questions, but the last thing I'd say is that <clears throat> what I've learned from all the trauma-informed work we've done as Leah's Pantry is the real importance to investigate what are your own feelings and biases and preconceptions about recovery. We didn't talk about that, but that's a trauma-informed practice of getting really comfortable with your family history, with your own relationship with substance use disorder, because if we're gonna be addressing this, we don't want stuff to come up while we're in the middle of a conversation or an intervention that surprises us. We need to know what our own boundaries are, we need to know what our own triggers are so that we can keep ourselves kind of regulated and calm. Um, most of us have some experience with this, right? Monica just told us. <laughs> um, but it's an uncomfortable topic. So that would be, I guess, my recommendation is spend some time with yourself. Well, it's a, it's a little bit like like a person that goes into therapy with anger issues and the therapist says, well, what makes you really upset? And it's my mom. My mom and I, you know, just don't talk about my mom. Okay, we'll talk about anger, but I will never, ever, ever mention your mother. Like that's not how therapy works, right? If that's the thing that keeps triggering the anger, why is that? Why does that trigger the anger? And if you think about it that way, we can, I mean, I'm all for eliminating numbers. We, when we weigh people, we have ethernet cables. They can't see them. We don't, we don't talk about numbers. You never, ever, ever talk about the number. And you say that right up front. Without talking about the number, let's talk about the weight concerns. And so weight should be part of the conversation. We could talk all day, clearly. Um, Pam, there's a, there's a, um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for a really, really great presentation. So I have two questions that are quick questions, but maybe really big answers and maybe controversial. Um, the first is, what if we had places where at the beginning of recovery, part of it was cooking your own food and gardening, just as like getting in touch with yourself, and do you think that would be effective and has up and tried? The second is, I know that there's some research, and I'm not super familiar with it, but that ultra-processed foods change the award, reward system in our brain. I'm just wondering if 
the, our changing food supply is actually triggering that the first time people use things, their brains may have been affected and it may be worsening. I don't even know if I'm saying this in the right way, but like, is our food supply with so many ultra processed foods actually possibly contributing to drug like, use? Like predisposing, predisposing us. Predisposing people. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, that whole gut microbiome, I mean, that's the whole thing, right? Because they, could, they sometimes call it the second brain. Like when you get butterflies in your stomach, right? There's a connection between the brain and there, and there's a lot of research on that. And the reward system in the brain that's triggered by cocaine or methamphetamine or any of those has the same trigger with binging, the same trigger with exercise addiction. Like all of those things stimulate the same part of the reward system. So absolutely that. And I also want to mention about the food and gardening. University Kentucky Extension is working on a toolkit right now that, that will be out soon on, on using a food and gardening uh, in recovery centers. That that's, that would be really cool. Yeah, that seems to be something that's popping up around the country, those food and gardening um, recovery centers. Um, so speaking of your, uh, your comment, though, about food. I would recommend the book Dopamine Nation um, because I don't know necessarily if it's altering, but um, the environment we live in um, depresses us so much that we need to keep kind of finding places to get dopamine and of course drugs uh, or food can, can be um, sources of that. They actually, I saw a study recently on people with substance use and they found, I think it was like two two uh, strains in terms of diversity in the microbiome that they only had two. So, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Hello, and um, yes, thank you for yes. <laughs> allowing me to ask my questions. So, um, as somebody that works in nutrition education and also in eating disorder spaces, being in eating disorder recovery myself, um, obviously there's a huge overlap between the root causes of eating disorders um, and substance abuse um, and the challenges that get in the way of recovery. Um, do you personally see in the communities that you work with um, eating disorder pathology beyond dieting as a primary concern? Um, that co-occurs with, with substance abuse? And then if so, you do see that, what role do you see nutrition education, sorry, nutrition educators play in addressing both substance abuse and eating disorder pathology? So yeah, I would have addressed that as big, it's huge. Yeah. It's a huge part of it. It's the self-medication that women do when they can't use the drug anymore. They do it in the prisons, they do it in inpatient, they do it in outpatient, and eating disorder, we, the first thing we teach them is that eating disorder is not recovery from substance use. And the problem with that is unlike smoking, methamphetamine, alcohol, any of the drugs, when you stop addiction, you can't quit food. So we have to teach them to build a relationship with food, with weight, with exercise, and with their body. That is the whole thing right there because that's what, and that's how I stumbled on this back in the 90s is in a women's prison watching women throwing up in their cells and covering for each other so an officer didn't take them, put them in the hole. So it, it was very rampant and I was like, what the heck is going on here? And then I realized that. So yeah, and I actually, I, I'm not plugging this because we don't charge it for it, but we have a, um, a curriculum out of uh, UNR Extension 
um, called Healthy Steps to Freedom that focuses on, um, it's got 10 lessons that incorporate nutrition, it's also in the SNAP-Ed Toolkit, nutrition, eating disorder, body image, it incorporates all that in because you can't talk, you can't say take a nutrition class and then go get you know recovery. And there's simple screens you guys can do too that will screen whether there's a problem without diagnosing for eating disorders. There's one called Base 10 I think is a pretty good one. Well, I think that's one of the problems with the trans-theoretical model in nutrition is that it was built for a recovery model, and I've never understood how to really use it, right? I mean, because there's so many different facets of eating and moving, so, like, what if you're in different phases? Like, I eat chips and kale. It's like, where do, you know? But, um, <clears throat> Stacy? Oh, you saw my name. It's like, eat a lot we, of carrots. We haven't met, have we? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna do this. Um, I have so many questions and I can't ask them today. But uh, I oversee FNEP in uh, Northeast Ohio and I have to say that during the pandemic that recovery centers were a very captive audience for us and that just keeps growing. Like that's a lot of um, the partnerships that we have now and this was just really just justified why we need to see even more. Um, but the question actually a couple of us at our table had, you had said that it's really important to grab them in the first 30 days. Are they prepared to receive that information in the first 30 days? And also, is it better to do it maybe later when they are going to go back maybe with their families and live on their own? So like the timing, we're, we're wondering like, it makes sense to do it right off the bat to keep them so they understand how to you know, stay in recovery, but yeah. Yeah, the, the first 30 days from a PSC standpoint, which I think you said, absolutely, we should be doing PSC efforts in the first 30 days. Nutrition education could come a little bit later, but it, it should come after they're starting to, you know, get food in their system. The thing is a lot of federal funding only lasts 90 days, if that. So unfortunately, that's why originally our curriculum was 12 weeks. We had to cut it to 10 so people could just finish it. Um, but girls are really responsive, especially women, to this stuff because, I mean, I've had women fill out a packet of this thick of stuff for me, which is why I have so much research. And when they're all done, they bring it to me and they go, is somebody going to go over this with me? <laughs> and it's heartbreaking because they've just shared everything that they're dealing with around food, around weight, and they want to talk about it. So I, yes, it would be better later on, but also they're in the process of reunification with their family, so in order for them to get their kids back from CPS, they have to show that they know how to cook. I was in a, in a jail the other day, and the girl said, how many of you, 50 girls, think you could cook for your family when you leave here? Eight girls raised their hand, and either three or four of them had taken our class, and that was the only reason. So. Yeah, I don't think it's something that it would be nice to wait, but I don't think we can, unfortunately. working on that. I've spent the last two years doing clinical trainings for psychologists, social workers, all of them, and they're starting to wake up. 
and uh, the work that Adrian and I are doing with Cassette, and I'm so thankful that three regions of this Rota grant, Rural Opioid Treatment, Northeast and Minnesota, and those guys are doing a lot, um, the Mountain West region, the Western region. I'm just happy, to, you saw that picture I put of SAMHSA and USDA talking to each other. I just want to see more yeah. of that, and yeah. Yeah, when you silo the funding, the programs become siloed on the ground. I mean, I mean, Go on we, and on about that. We stole SAMHSA's model and said, we need to apply this to, mm -hmm. you know, right? The, the clinicians are, are thinking about tinkering with the, the biological aspects of addiction. Um, and we said, well, this can come into our field. Yeah. I think last question. Hi, uh, Carly Truett, Rucker Snap Ed. Um, thank you for this session. I actually decided to focus my MPH in nutritional sciences and become an RD because I worked as a substance abuse counselor in medication-assisted treatment for opioid addiction, um, and we were required to give nutrition education, having no nutritional background ourselves. Um, and the curriculum was at best outdated and at worst completely out of touch with what was going on with our patients. Um, so I'm wondering. Is there a curriculum that focuses specifically on this um, like outpatient, almost type of transactional type of recovery um, setting? And if not, is there a way to get nutrition educators or even RDs embedded into this type of treatment? Yeah, so I did mention the Healthy Steps of Freedom, which is the yes. curriculum that we've done, and we have evidence based mm -hmm. on that. We're just getting ready to write up because we converted from 12 to 10, but it has all of those um, components. And I, I also know University of Kentucky has one that's more for men and women. The one that I did focuses specifically on women. Um, it's a gender responsive curriculum, but um, the University of Kentucky has one that focuses on in recovery. Um, but yeah, if you don't, if you, if you have to be careful just using the traditional model and, and that you can actually end up doing more harm than good mm -hmm. because people are, they're taking notes on, on, you know, how to, you know, completely trash what you're saying is good in a way that, that, um, that harms them and, and causes them to relapse, so. And Leah's pantry is gonna be working with Washington State, you guys can raise your hand at the front here, um, to be adapting food smarts which is our kind of big flagship curriculum to be supportive at the instructor level and also the lesson plans and also the participant handouts so we'll be able to provide better support for people working in recovery settings with food smarts i am a huge food smarts fan yeah. okay. <laughs> we use it all the time so that is awesome well that's <laughs> one why we figured it would be a good idea <laughs> okay i know we're going to probably get kicked and through out. this rota grant we're also developing resources and fact sheets on eating pathology body dissatisfaction all of those so that you'll be able to there's gonna there's a those. lot and yeah so i think we have to close um it's been a pleasure thank you all um we're up here if you want to continue to ask questions. We just want to release those of you into the wild. Tell me, do you think of me?